Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today. Well, I say it's the most wonderful time of the year. If you take a deep enough breath, you can already uh, begin to smell Thanksgiving dinner as it uh, at least is formulated in the hearts and minds of those who will bless us with their culinary skills in a little bit over a week. And some of you may ask, well, Pastor Chris, how do you know it's the most wonderful time of year? Well, my response would be, I know it because yesterday my wife made me pull the Christmas decorations out of the basement and into our living room so that we can begin to decorate our house. How many agree with me that there should be a national law that says that you are not allowed to put up Christmas decorations until the day after Thanksgiving? Anybody agree with me? Signing that petition. <laughs> Honey, I love you. I'm just joking. We are overachievers in the Brooks household, and it's already happening. But we are only 41 days away from Christmas. And in that time period, this time period, which has classically been known as Advent, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the coming of our Lord, many people the world over are going to once again look to the beauty of the Bible and its record of that first Christmas. And why is it, it begs the question, why is it that so many people still, not just in our time, but in every generation, has looked to the beauty of the Bible for direction and for history and for worship? I think the answer is, in part at least, is because of the uh, brilliant way in which the Bible handles the tensions of life. Now, we all know that life presents us with tensions, and what is a tension? It is when two things that seem to be paradoxical in nature, contradictory in nature, at least to our thinking, are held as both simultaneously being true. And the Bible does a great job in helping us to understand both sin and salvation, both fallenness and redemption, both death and resurrection. It doesn't cancel out one in order to affirm the other. It doesn't pretend like one doesn't exist and the other does. They're presented to us as attention that we have to hold as true because the same Bible that we read about one tells and affirms of the other. Well, today the Apostle Paul is going to address another tension in life that all of us live with, and it is a tension that exists between suffering and hope, suffering and hope, the, the pain of this life and the promise of God. How do we deal with that tension? You know, one of the great things about this time of year between Thanksgiving and Christmas are the movies. How many love the movies that come out during this time of year? And typically the best movies, in my opinion, are released somewhere around this time of year. And such was the case in 1987. In 1987, one of my favorite movies in the pop culture phenomenon known as The Princess Bride was released. Anybody ever heard of The Princess Bride before? I'm not sure why you clap for that, but praise the Lord. But The Princess Bride, this great movie that has so many awesome characters and wonderful lines, the main character of which is this, uh, this prince who was taken captive and now released from captivity, escapes from captivity, is now a pirate figure. And his name is Wesley, the great dread pirate Wesley. And Wesley is rescuing the princess, this princess who was also taken captive. And there's this exchange that they have in the middle of the movie, and he says this famous line, 
lying to her about the difficulties and the hardships of life. He says, life is pain, your highness. And anyone who tells you differently is trying to sell you something. Think about the soberness of those words, that life is pain, your highness. We cannot deny the pain of life, and nor does the Bible deny the pain of life. The Bible does not deny both the pains that come through nature and through the fallenness of our physical bodies. The Bible affirms that there are both hurricanes and heartaches, that there is both decay and depression, that there is all of the fallenness and brokenness and pain of this world. But is pain the only story presented to us? The answer is no. As we look to the word of God today, I want you to turn to Romans chapter eight. And as we turn to Romans chapter eight, I am reminded of the words of a great author and Pastor Philip Yancey. Maybe you've heard of Pastor Philip Yancey. Uh, Pastor Philip Yancey says this, that any discussion on the role that pain and suffering has in fitting into God's plan ultimately must lead to the cross and to the resurrection because it's at the cross and the resurrection where hope consumes suffering. Here is the promise of scripture that we're going to see today is that although pain is real, the promise of God is that one day, that hope is going to consume our suffering. That one day, God's glory is gonna prevail over our pain. We're gonna be looking at verses 18 through 25 today. And what we're gonna see is that this present suffering will give way to future glory. Now, Paul starts with creation. And he looks at the fallenness of creation and what he wants us to know is that creation groans uh, with uh, this desire to be fully restored. It's groaning in hopes for full restoration. And he starts with these words in verse number 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The apostle Paul looks at his present suffering and he says that my present suffering, your present suffering, it is real. The present suffering of disappointment and betrayal, the present suffering of heartache and, and, and sickness, the present suffering that we experience in a world that is full of wars and mistreatment and Again, abuses, all of those things are real, but our promised glory is even greater and so much more magnificent that it will ultimately consume and outweigh the present pain that we are going through. Now, I love the word that he starts off with this phrase, for I consider. If you look at the old English KJV, it says, I reckon. Now, I reckon is not a phrase that we use in our current contemporary language. It probably is not a phrase that you are familiar with unless you had a grandparent from the South. If you had a grandparent from the South, you probably heard I reckon a lot. I reckon this or I reckon that. What does I reckon mean? I reckon means that I have considered the facts. I have surveyed the past and I've come to a conclusion about the future based off of those things. Well, the Apostle Paul had considered 
the, the, the facts. He had surveyed the past and he had reckoned something about his future, namely that these present sufferings cannot be compared with the future glory that shall be ours in Christ. Well, what was it that he had considered? Well, let's look back at what he had already said. Look at verses 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17 read as this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul had considered this reality that I am a child of God, that we who have trusted in Jesus are children of God, and we are heirs, heirs not of just possessions and things. Yes, we will get a new heaven. Yes, we will get a new earth. Yes, we will be able to be at the bountiful marriage supper of the Lamb, but he says something far more glorious. He says that we will receive as our inheritance, God himself, that we are heirs of God, that one day there is going to be a time where we will experience our salvation in full and we will be fully in the presence of the Lord. And if the psalmist is right, that there is the fullness of joy in the presence of the Lord. You know, in this life, in this present moment, we know temporary joys. The temporary joy of a good meal. The temporary joy of a job well done. The temporary joy of a win by buying Michigan State Spartan football team. Those are all temporary joys. They will be here for a moment, but they'll be gone after a moment. But there will be a day that is coming where we will be in the presence of our God, our inheritance, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, and we will know endless joy. We will know joy that will not ever stop. We will know joy to the full because we'll be in the presence of our awesome and almighty God. How many praise God for that truth? Now, Paul considers this, I'm a child of God, I'm, a, I'm an heir of God, I am a joint heir with Christ. And then he says these words, after considering those things in 16 and 17, it's as if he picks his pen up and says, for I reckon, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. It's not that they're not true. Suffering is true, but it's not worth comparing. It, it just doesn't tip the scales. Now, as weighty as it is what he said, let's consider who said it for a moment. This is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul who was beaten for his faith. The Apostle Paul who was stoned for his faith. The Apostle Paul who took lashes for his faith. The Apostle Paul who was shipwrecked for his faith. The Apostle Paul who was imprisoned for, him, for his faith. This was the Apostle Paul who was lowered in a basket over a wall in the middle of the night because his pursuers were chasing after him, desiring to take his life to kill him because he would not stop professing and preaching Jesus. This was a man who had suffered much. He knew what it was, he said, to be in lack. He knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to be in peril. He knew what it was to be naked. He had suffered much. My friends, we, we shouldn't just listen to people who are poetic or eloquent 
Today even, as I go throughout my sermon, I'm gonna quote some people, but I'm not just quoting people because they said uh, really fancy and memorable things, but I'm quoting people who have gone through the depths of suffering and have still maintained their praise of God. These are the people that are worth us pattering our lives after. Not those who haven't suffered much and maybe just speak from a shallow optimism, but those who have experienced the depth of heartache and betrayal and sickness and pain, but yet they still trust and praise God. How many in, in this building today have made a decision that though he slay me, yet will I trust him? How many have made a decision that from the rising of the sun to the going down or the setting of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised? How many have decided that I will sing praises to the Lord both now and forevermore, that the devil will never be able to stop me from giving praise and glory to my God? The fact that the Apostle Paul, in light of all that he suffered, wrote these words caused me to pause and take them seriously. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the imprisonments, the stonings, the lashes, the beatings, the shipwrecks, the betrayals, all of this is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Why? Because I am an heir of God. I remember it wasn't too long ago that on my radio program, I said to my producer, I wanna have a special program. I wanna invite some millennials on to my program. So we had a round table. It was four millennial students from Moody that were invited to ask anything. They could ask any question, no holds barred. And there was this young lady, 19, 20 years old, student at Moody that asked a question and still to, my, to this day marks my, my thinking and my soul. She asked a very simple question and that is, why would anyone get married? You know, and I learned enough about question and answer times like this to not just quickly give a canned answer, but to question the question. To ask the questioner, why are you asking this question? So I asked her, why are you asking this question? She says, because no one in my family has ever been married and I have never heard anyone say anything good about marriage. I said, well, what about your parents? Surely they were married. She says, no, they, they had me and my siblings, but they never got married. What about your grandparents? No, they had kids together, but they never got married. No one in my family has ever gotten married and they have only had bad things to say. And my response to her is that, you know what? They're, they're right in part, and here's where they're right. They're right that marriage is difficult, that there are days where marriage is hard. There are days when you wake up and your feelings don't feel like being married. Now, if that's you and you're here with your spouse, just look straight ahead. They will never know that that's how you feel sometimes. But let me tell you why I, at least, am married. It is because of the overwhelming joy, in spite of the bad days, that I get to do life with her. The fact that I get the privilege of being able to experience a relationship with my wife each and every day is so far beyond the difficult and challenging days. Yes, there are difficult and challenging days, but the beauty of being in a relationship with my wife makes those difficult days not only not memorable, but not worth comparing to the glory 
of being with her. And I know that I run a risk by saying that because there may be some that are in here that are in marriages that have never experienced that to the depth. And I pray that one of the things that God will do through the gospel and the presence of Christ is bless your marriage that way. But some of you know what I'm talking about. The glory of marriage is being with that person. Well, likewise, Paul, looking at his present suffering, says it is not even worth comparing to the glory of knowing him, that I get to have him in my life, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. It far surpasses and outweighs any suffering that I will endure. It's not that the bad days don't come, but he is greater than the bad days. How many agree with that truth? Then Paul turns his attention to the groaning of creation. He says, for creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope mm, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul does something extraordinarily profound. He gives us the answer for why suffering. Why is there evil in the world? And he looks at natural evil first, nature. Why are there earthquakes and famines? Why is there droughts? Why are there uh, hurricanes and storms and tornadoes and snow and sleep? Why is all of this happening? Why is there so much brokenness in creation? He says, the answer is Genesis 3. Now you remember Genesis 3, don't you? Genesis 3 comes after Genesis 1. Isn't that profound? <laughs> now, in Genesis 1, we see this all-wise God making creation perfectly. That all of creation was flawless, without blemish. And after everything he made, he declared, it is good. He made sun and moon and stars, and it was good. He made the things that creep upon the earth, and it was good. He made the birds of the air, and it was good. Night and day, and those things were good. But by the time we get to the sixth day, we see the apex of his creation, you and me. When he made you and me, humanity, he didn't declare it is good. He declared it is very good. We were the apex of his creation. And that's what makes Genesis 3 so heartbreaking because in Genesis 3, we see the rebellion of humanity. The rebellion of Adam and Eve, who were our federal heads, and in them we all have sinned and inherited the consequences of that sin and their sin nature. Paul points to Genesis 3, and it's in Genesis 3, verses 17 and 18, where God passes out judgment that includes creation. And he says, even to nature, to the ground, that from you, from henceforth, shall come thorns and thistles. This is God's way of saying decay will now be a part of the world and created order that death to those things that were made pristine and beautiful will now be a part of the world. It wasn't meant to be, but now it is because of sin. And can I say just parenthetically, 
Don't ever let someone convince you that sin is somehow a private endeavor. That somehow when you look at pornography on that screen, it's only affecting your soul. That somehow when you break covenant with your spouse, it's your private business. That somehow when you cheat or lie or rebel against what is right or true, that somehow you're only affecting you. Nothing could be further from the truth. Sin always spills over. It always touches more than just you. It is always a public thing. When covenants are broken between spouses, it multiplies the distrust that we see among people throughout the church and even society. And when sin is spilling over, it touches, yes, even creation. And what Paul looks at, he says that creation was subject to decay. It was subject to death. But who judged it? Who made it subject to death? Who made it subject to futility? It wasn't Satan, it was God. According to Paul, it was he who subjected it. Now, why would God subject creation to this type of punishment? So that we might have a visible reminder of the sinfulness of sin. Because you and I, we are prone to forget that sin is deadly and destructive. But every time we see a hurricane, every time we see storms come through our community and flood our basements, every time we see the earthquake, every time we see the world disrupted, it is a reminder to us of the effects of sin. And it is a call to us to repent, to long to, for God, and to cry out, to groan as he says, for the restoration of the world that will happen at the return of the Lord. But here's the good thing, because our God is so merciful, he does not subject the world to despair. He does not punish the world and give us nothing but hopelessness. But notice what he says in verse number 20. He subjected it in hope. Now, what is hope? Well, Pastor Tony Evans, a man who has experienced over the last 18 months or so tremendous suffering. His father died. His wife died. His daughter was diagnosed with cancer. His brother died. He says this, that far too many Christians erroneously define hope as wishing for something they'll never get. That's not what hope is. J.I. Packard, another great pastor theologian, who dealt with this degenerative uh, eye disease before he passed away, he, he said this about hope, or the difference between wishing and hoping. He says, wishing is based off of an uncertainty about the future, but hope is based off of a certainty that comes from God's character and his promises. When we wish for something, we're not sure if it's gonna happen. We're wishing that it happens, but we're uncertain. But that's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is rooted and grounded in the character of God where we know with confidence this is gonna happen because he who promised is faithful. 
And so what did he say when he judged creation? He put it, he subjected it in hope. And here's what he said to creation. He says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He says, listen, you are going to suffer decay now, but there is a day that is coming where there will be a new heaven and a new earth and all of this decay will be wiped away and there'll be no more hurricanes, no more earthquakes, no more storms, but there will be peace forever and ever. How many praise God for the new heaven and a new earth that is coming to glory of God? The revelation of Jesus Christ. He promises this, and why do we trust him? It's because of his track record. It's kind of like this. Sometimes we lend people, we give them a line of credit, or we lend them money. Why? Because of their track record of payment of previous payments, that they, they do that faithfully, we'll lend them. Well, we can praise God today for future promises, promises that have not yet come because of his track record, that everything he has promised, he has done and he has kept, he has made every payment. How many today can say that he who promises is faithful, that God is faithful, that we can trust him for what he says, there is a new heaven and there is is a new earth that's coming. But he doesn't stop there. He quickly turns our attention from creation to our own bodies, and he reminds us that God's people groan in hope for full redemption. He says this, and not only creation, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says there's pains in our bodies and he knows this pain. And how do we know he knows this pain? Because we read that three times he cried out to God about this thorn in his side, Lord, remove it, but the Lord did not. He said, my grace is sufficient. Maybe you know what it is to go through um, uh, chronic pain. Maybe you know what it's like to get a diagnosis from a doctor that, that says you're gonna have to go through intense treatment or maybe even worse, this is inoperable. Maybe you know what it's like to watch your children, your babies, go through a sickness that is hurting them and they're experiencing pain and you wish you can intervene. And some of us as parents know what it's like to feel helpless as your, parent, as your, uh, your children are suffering and you can't stop the suffering. Paul says there's a promise. There's a promise for us, for these bodies. And what is the promise? There's a promise that when Jesus comes back, we will get new bodies. My friends, there is a day that is coming when the Lord returns where I will have no more ailments. There'll be no more pain in my body. I will not need these glasses anymore. There will be a day where my Afro will be back. There will be a day where there will be no more pain in these bodies. We will get resurrected bodies. And for the longest time, I thought that was the best part of the story, that the best part of the story is no more aches, no more pain, no more doctors, no more disease. But then I read the writings of Johnny Erickson Tata. And some of you know Johnny. She is a quadriplegic 
who's been used as an evangelist and minister to many, and I'll close with this. Recently, she celebrated the 50th anniversary of her ministry, 50 years of being a quadriplegic, not having use of her limbs. And she wrote an article to her supporters, and it was simply entitled, Why I Long for a Glorified Body. And what she said was profound. She says, if you think that the thing that I'm most excited about with my glorified body is that I'm gonna have new legs that will allow me to run and walk, you'd be wrong. She says, if you think that the thing I'm most excited about is that I'm gonna have new arms that I could work with and hug people with, you'd be wrong. She says, the thing that I am most excited about when I consider my glorified body is that I'm gonna have a new heart, a new heart that won't sin against God anymore a new heart that won't betray his word, a new heart that won't mistreat people, a new heart that won't be full of pride or jealousies or envies. The greatest part about our glorified bodies is that God is going to give us new hearts. And why is that important? It was because with our hearts we sinned against him. And all the suffering of the world, the origin story of the suffering of creation and our bodies is sin. And if we get new hearts, we deal with the suffering problem. If you want to deal with suffering in your life and in the world, cry out to him who is able to give you a new heart. And there is only one that can give you and I the new hearts we need. And his name is Jesus. And when you put your trust in him, there is a great promise ahead. It is far greater than anything this world could offer. It is a promise of a new heaven, a new earth, new bodies. But most importantly, above it all, a new heart that will be trusting and loving God forever and ever and ever. And Maybe today you long for that new heart. Maybe today you say, I am tired of my life being ripped apart because of the evilness of my own heart. Trust in Jesus because he alone can save us and give us new hearts. And he promises that he will. How many praise God for his truth. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me. We're going to close in worship today. We're going to be reminded today of our God and how great he is because there's nothing that compares to him. And if today you wanna give your life to Jesus, know that there'll be people here to pray with you. And if you're online, just simply type the word connect in your comment box. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today that your word would be so branded on our hearts that in spite of the suffering of this present moment, that we will be able to praise and rejoice in you because you are worthy of it all and there is nothing that compares to our great God. And it's in Jesus' mighty and matchless name we pray. And all God's people say it with a loud voice, amen and amen. Come on and give God praise. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.